Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 17. It says this, But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? And who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please, un uh, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. Join me in a word of prayer, if you would, please. Lord, again, we come to you this morning, and we're so thankful for the privilege of your word. Lord, especially in times like this, when we need direction, we need wisdom. And Lord, uh, we are seeking to live our lives right now in the midst of some very strange times. And it's so easy to be derailed by the circumstances we're experiencing. So Lord, allow us to, to draw our hearts to you, to allow the word of God to speak freely and boldly. And Lord, allow me to be your messenger. What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And Lord, what we are not, would you make us now? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I remember growing up that um, one of the things that I experienced was what most children experience in their relationship with their parents. I think, actually, some parents' response to their children is somewhat universal. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. A child says, Mom, how do you spell vacuum? Mom responds, look it up in the dictionary, or she did in my day. Now she probably says, look it up on Google. Then the child says, Mom, can't you just tell me it would be quicker that way? And mom says, it might be quicker, but you would never learn. And all of you are shaking your heads right now because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or maybe there's a father who asks his young son, who's been playing with the Legos in his room, to, to clean up the Legos and put it all away because it's going to be time for his bath and then eventually he needs to go to bed. And the son says, I can't. Now, a wise parent needs to be able to discern between the I can't and the I'm telling you that I can't because I simply don't want to. And another possibility, which may be, Dad, this is a job that is too overwhelming for me. There's Legos everywhere. And in the former case, the parent says, you can and you will. But in the latter case, the parent says, start with the Legos that are on your bed. And when you get those done, come and see me. And the child goes off, starts with the Legos on, the, on their bed. They put them away. There's still Legos all over the place. They come and see dad and dad says, hey, why don't you now tackle the Legos that are under the windows? The child does that. 
See, this is the parent who recognizes that that child is overwhelmed by the task before them. And so he's broken it down into smaller chunks so that that job or that task can be achieved. Now, the point I'm trying to make here, the point I'm trying to set up here is this, that sometimes our children can feel overwhelmed by our demands. They feel incapable, inadequate, fearful of getting it wrong and simply overwhelmed with the task. And if we simply reinforce their conformity to our demands with further threats of discipline, we may not be helping. But if we can discern what is going on in their hearts and their heads, and we can come up with a plan that not only helps them, but also gets the job done, then we have done a good thing. And friends, that's a, that's a helpful backdrop to our text today. God has called Moses to take on the role of being the deliverer for his people. At first, if you remember, Moses responds with the question, who am I? How can I do that? I'm 80 years old. I'm a reject. Then Moses continues with another question, and that is, who are you? And whom shall I say sent me? And God responds with that very, very well-known statement, I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. And last week, we considered the third question and that third concern given by Moses. Well, what shall I do when those who I speak to won't listen to my voice? And God says, here are three signs that you can do to authenticate my message. Well, friends, that's what's happened so far, and these questions have been real questions and daunting questions for Moses. Now, in this text, though, we don't have questions as much as we have statements, but there's still statements that are questioning whether or not he can actually do what God is calling him to do. The tension is building, and Moses' true colors are starting to show, and he comes out with two statements. One is, I can't. The other one is, I won't. And so this morning, as we come to this text, I would like for us to think about the fact that we need to overcome ourselves in fulfilling God's call for our lives. Or maybe to put it a little differently, we need to embrace God fully in our calling. Friends, the question is this, to what degree are we overwhelmed with ourselves and as a result, not fully embracing God in our circumstances? Or to put it differently, to what degree do we still have a diminished view of God? And because of our unbelief, we're still consumed with our weakness and imperfections and fears. I think one of the, the clues in this text is how God is identified. Notice how the narrator and God refers to himself. The narrator and God both refer to God as Yahweh. If you notice that, it's the L capital O-R-D. That's the I am who I am that God has revealed during chapter 3. He's the sovereign, self-sustaining, all-powerful, unchanging covenant God. And God was saying to Moses, I will be with you. I will work through you. But even now, after God has revealed himself, Moses stands before this burning bush, and every time Moses refers to God, 
he uses Adonai instead of Yahweh. Moses may have had the knowledge of the Lord revealed to him, but he is not embracing it. He's not believing it. So this morning, I want us to begin by looking at what Moses says. He first of all says, I can't. And this is Moses' declaration. Again, let's read it. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. In other words, he's saying, listen, I know you want me to do this, but I can't do this. And here are his two objections. This is what I am not. I am not eloquent. In other words, Moses is saying he's deficient. This word eloquent means, literally means a man of words. He's not a man of words. He doesn't have that capacity. Now, this certainly could refer to shyness in speaking, uh, in particular in public, and many of us can relate to that. It can mean lacking confidence in encountering the, the rhetoric of the Egyptians. And one of the things historically that we understand is that these magicians were also very skillful at rhetoric. Imagine if you were called to speak at the U.S. Senate or the House of Representatives where eloquence and debate skills are rampant. I think we would all probably, likely, feel a sense of inadequacy. I think we'd all wonder whether we would freeze in that moment or whether we would be tongue-tied or just mumble some words. I wonder whether we would all likely have a hard time sleeping the night before because we're so consumed with that opportunity that we may have. And he's saying, listen, I'm not eloquent. I'm deficient. But he's also saying something else. He's saying, this is what I am. I am slow of speech and of tongue. And that's, that can imply a number of things. It can imply, first of all, there's the shyness in speaking in public, like we said. Not grasping the language. He's been out of Egypt for a while. But one of the things we find here is that he does pretty well going back. And that doesn't seem to be an issue. Because he talks about something that is a problem in the past. And that certainly wasn't a problem then. It can refer to a speech impediment of sort, and, and, and it's very likely that that was the case. Or it can refer to a person to whom words do not come easily. Sometimes we just don't open our mouths because the words and that, that particular word that we're looking for just doesn't come. You know what I'm talking about. You've been there. You've experienced that. So Moses didn't think himself sufficiently quick in thinking up counter-arguments to deal with objections as they arose in the royal courts of Egypt. So the text is somewhat silent on the specifics, except for two things. And the two things I think we can say are this. First of all, it takes Moses at face value. Moses is saying these things about himself, and God in nowhere is saying that those things aren't true. Secondly, as we see further on in the text, God brings in Aaron, and one of the things he says about Aaron is that Aaron can speak well. And so there is, I think, a reality, there's a truth to what Moses is saying here about his inadequacies. These are not just excuses. They're human realities for Moses. Ultimately, they will be excuses, but they're real. And friends, what does it mean to be deficient? What does it mean 
to be weak or broken? Well, first of all, what does it mean to be deficient? It is to say to yourself, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not popular enough. I'm not skillful enough. I'm not confident enough. I'm not equipped enough. I'm not woke enough. It's to say to yourself, I fall short of the standard that is necessary in order to be taken seriously. And often that standard is a standard that your society has put in your head. What does it mean to be weak and broken? It's to believe or to think or to feel that I'm sick, that I'm struggling physically, that I'm tongue-tied. These may be true physical issues, that I'm anxious or insecure, fearful. These are true realities, that I'm damaged goods, that I have a stutter, that I'm too old, that I'm too young. And friends, the truth of the matter is that all of us sitting under the word today are deficient, we're weak, we're broken people. As much as we try, and we try, we all sin and fall short of God's glory. Now friends, consider this. Moses may be the first prophet to respond this way, but he won't be the last. When Isaiah was summoned to the throne room of God, he cried, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That's Isaiah 6, verse 5. When God's word came to Jeremiah, appointing him as a prophet to the nations, he said, Ah, sovereign Lord, I do not, uh, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. Even to this day, many Christians hold back from sharing their faith for fear that they will not know what to say or how to say it. See, this is where Moses is struggling. He's struggling with his deficiencies. He's struggling with his brokenness. And friends, it's clear that Moses is still focused on himself as the one who was called rather than on the Lord, the I am, as the one who called. It's painfully obvious to us, isn't it, when we read this story? And yet, if the stories of our lives were written down in a book, I wonder how much what didn't seem to us or wasn't obvious to us would be obvious to everyone else, painfully obvious. See, when it's Moses, we can see clearly, can't we? When it's us, when it's me, well, then it's very, very hard to get past me. And that is where Moses is right now. He can't get past himself. He can't lift up his eyes to behold truly and fully the one who calls him. And every single one of Moses' objections to God and his call have ultimately stemmed from his own feelings of inadequacy. So friends, he's saying, I can't. But then God responds And of course, God is going to say, oh, yes, you can. (laughs) So God now responds to Moses' words in two ways. The first way is through confrontation. Look at verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? There's something very Job-esque in what we're reading here in God's response to Moses, isn't there? For us who have been at Gateway 
and last year went through Job, and particularly we were maybe reminded of Job 38 and 39. When God is speaking out of the whirlwind to confront Job, and this is what he says, Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who determined the measurements of the earth and its foundation? Surely you know. Who shut in the sea with doors? Who has cleft the channel for the torrents of rain? Now with Job, God was seeking to put him in his place. But with Moses... Their words to confront his continued reluctance to answer this call. So here God addresses the concerns that Moses has about his claim on inadequacy. He has made man's mouth. Who has made man's mouth? Well, certainly it's God. Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, friends, this is a really, really important text. God has created your DNA. And even in this fallen world where things don't always come out perfectly, and that is us, God created you with all of those, might want to say, flaws. God says, I made man mute, deaf, and seeing, and the blind. Do you think that your inadequacy can't be overcome? Do you think that your fear and anxiety excuse you from serving me? Moses, I am, has done these things. I am, has created man in his fallen world with weakness, imperfections, and frailties. Moses, I have created you the way you are so that you can do what I'm calling you to do. And if I am made you, created you, then I am can overcome the deficiencies and broken you. He can overcome your weakness and your feelings and your inadequacies. So friends, he begins here with confrontation, and we certainly would expect him to do so, but he continues on with compassion. Now therefore go, here's a command that he's reinforced again, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. The Lord gives two words of comfort for Moses' weakness. First of all, he says something about his presence. He says, first of all, I will be with you. I will be with your mouth. And then he says something about his guidance. I will teach you. I will teach you what you shall speak. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The King's Speech. It's a great movie. It's it's a moving movie. And it's about uh, uh, the, the ultimate king of England. His name was Bertie, Prince Albert, who became King George VI. But he came to the throne unexpectedly. And one of the issues with him is that he had a speech impediment, a stammer or a stummer. And as the king of England, he must speak to his country. Again, you might not understand that living here in the United States, but when, when the king or the queen speaks, it's like the whole nation stops to listen. And in particular, back in his day, it was right before uh, the Second World War was about to break out and, and Hitler was on, on the rampage. And so he had to speak to the country. He had to bring words of comfort. And in particular, he had to bring words of comfort as he was going to announce the fact that they were going to war with Germany. And the story 
There's a wonderful story about this relationship with an Australian speech therapist and this new king of England who, who had to, to fight and to work to overcome his speech impediment. And as the story comes to, to a close and that moment comes, he's able to read his speech without any issues, bringing comfort to the nation. And friends, it's a reminder that although our struggles are real, that where possible, we must work hard to overcome them. That is what God is saying here. Not only is he promising to be with Moses, he's promising to teach Moses, and teaching implies learning. But teachers must have willing students. And to be willing students, when, we, uh, when you have what seems to be a realistic obstacle, means that you must trust him and work hard. Trust God that with his help you can overcome this obstacle and that he will still work through you. So friends, weakness and feelings of inadequacy come in many forms, don't they? Sometimes they're physical. Sometimes they're emotional. Sometimes they're circumstantial. But hear this, God takes our I can'ts and turns them into I wills. You think that God can't use you. God says, oh, I can. And not only can I, but I will. Now, friends, there are a number of examples that I can give you that will just reinforce this truth. People who have inadequacies, who have hindrances, who've been greatly used by God. Let me just give you three. The first one is a person you probably know, maybe the younger generation doesn't know too well. Her name is Fanny Crosby. She was born in New York in 1820, and she developed a, an illness soon after birth, and the parents took her to their regular doctor, but he wasn't available, and instead of then being able to see him, they went to another doctor that said he knew what to do, and he, he uh, prescribed basically that they would take a, a hot mustard concoction and put it on her eyes, and that would help with it. Her illness ultimately gets better, but his ill-advised treatment left her blind for the rest of her life. And a few months after um, her father died, and then her mother, because father had died, had to go off to find work as a maid. And so she basically was raised by her grandmother, and at eight, um, she writes her first poem. And here's what it says. Oh, what a happy soul am I. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I am blind, I cannot and I won't. At age eight, she's already grasping that her blindness does not mean that she's put on the shelf. Years later, a pastor told her that it was a pity that she had been blind all of these years, and she replied that she was thankful for it. In fact, she said, because it means that the first sight that I will ever see is my Lord and Savior in all of His splendor and glory. You see, she had a perspective. She had a problem. She had an issue. She had a physical hindrance, but she was able to take that physical hindrance and give it to the Lord and trust Him. And ultimately, you know her as a very prolific 
hymn writer. And one of the hymns that I think would have helped Moses that she, um, that she wrote, and ultimately we sing, um, is this. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt His tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Just take that all into consideration with her hindrance of blindness. Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in Him to dwell, for I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. All the way my Savior leads me, cheers each winding path I tread, gives me grace for every trial, feeds me with the living bread. Though my weary steps may falter and my soul a thirst may be, gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. You might just sing that song and not understand the context, but when you understand who's writing this, these words jump out. She sees God as her guide, and ultimately she rejoices in what she is going to see. And yet she's not bitter, and God used her greatly. The second illustration I want to just draw your attention to is a woman by the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you know who she is. In fact, uh, one in our church, um, uh, the son, uh, worked for Johnny and Friends for many years. Um, but she was a, a very active young woman. She was the daughter of uh, a wrestler, um, an Olympic wrestler. And um, so she was very, very active in sports and writing and all that kind of stuff. And one day at age 17, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay and misjudged the depth and ended up... Um, becoming a quadriplegic. In other words, she was paralyzed from the shoulders down. And during her two years of rehabilitation, she experienced anger and depression and suicidal thoughts and even religious doubts. But she also learned to paint. And she used to paint with a brush between her teeth, and she began to sell her artwork. And then she wrote a book in 1976. Johnny, the unforgettable story of a young woman's struggle against quadriplegia and depression. And since then, she has become a best-selling author, a gospel-centered conference speaker, and an inspiration to all who have disabilities with her, in, her organization, Johnny and Friends. Here she is, someone who can't walk, can't bathe by herself, can't take care of herself. And yet, even with that, God has used her to proclaim His glory to many people. And there's another one. You may have seen this guy on YouTube and stuff. His name is Nick Vujicic, born without arms or legs. And he's quite a character. He'll go into schools, he'll go into churches, and he'll, he'll give an inspirational story, an inspirational talk that is gospel-centered, gospel-based based on where he's at. And he's up there on the stage or on a platform, and he's just like hobbling around because without legs and arms, he looks kind of strange. And yet you watch the crowd, you watch the people, and you see their faces, and they're just they're taking it all in. They, they, they want to listen to what he has to say because he is so uh, foreign to their thinking of what uh, someone should look like in the sense of being okay with himself. In fact, one of the one of the, the pictures I remember of him, um, as I've as I've watched different things of him, 
um, because he has a great sense of humor. He he's got he's just gotten out of the pool, and he's standing there as he would stand, right on 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 his stubs, you know, on the side of the pool, and he's shivering and he's saying, "I feel so cold. I'm so cold. I can't feel my hands." You see, he understands. He he settled his brokenness. He settled his frailty. And friends, if we're to look hard enough in the body of Christ, we'll see so many deficient and broken people who have come to terms with their circumstances, their trials, and their difficulties. Oh, they may still struggle. They may still have heartaches, but they've recognized that God has called them to a particular kind of life. And they're doing all they can in their weakness to serve and glorify God. I'm talking about the the faithful grandmother whose children have wandered from the truth, but she's working hard to invest herself in the lives of her grandchildren. For her, that's her mission field. That is her calling. I'm thinking about the brother or sister who are struggling through debilitating sickness. Maybe it's cancer or diabetes or something like that. But God takes them on their journey. And on that journey, they see that this is the journey that God has called them to. And they take advantage of the times. Maybe they're in the hospital or they're talking with other people who are going through similar things. They're resigned that this is where God has placed them. And this is the arena where he wants to be glorified. I'm talking about the homeless man or woman trying to survive in the Bay Area, looking to God and embracing their circumstances as the will of God for them at this moment. And friends, let me ask you a question. Which is the greater glory? That God works His will through fearless, skillful, and fully equipped servants? Or that God works His will through fearful deficient, broken servants? And I think you know the answer. God is glorified to work through our weakness because then we are not the focus. He is. So Moses says, I can't, but God says, you will. Now, as we continue on, Moses says, ultimately, I won't. Let's put Moses' words in perspective. Back in chapter 3 of Exodus, in verse 16, we read this. God saying, go and gather the elders of Israel together. Then in chapter 3 and verse 18, God says to Moses, and they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt. And now in chapter 4, verse 12, now therefore, go. God has already said to Moses, go three times. But Moses doesn't want to go. And here we have Moses' desperate plea, don't we? Verse 13, but he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Now, friends, it isn't that Moses doesn't have assurance. He does. God has already said, I'll be with you. It isn't that Moses doesn't have authority, because he does. It isn't that God hasn't answered all his questions and concern because he has. No reason is given by Moses as to why God should send someone else. Moses is all out of excuses. And he's pleading with God now to send someone else. 
This is nothing other than disobedience, friends. Certainly Moses is struggling, but ultimately his struggle leads to his unbelief and his disobedience. An unwillingness here to do what God has called him to do, an unwillingness to trust what God has promised. I don't know if you've ever been part of a, a missions conference where uh, someone gets up and talks about the, the, the fields are wide unto harvest, and they are. Or there are lost souls that need to be reached and need to be saved, and there are. And the 1040 window that is open and calling, and it is. And then someone gets up and sings, Here am I, Lord, send me. Here am I, Lord, send me. And you're feeling the pressure. And in your heart, you're saying to yourself, Here am I, Lord, send him. And here am I, Lord, send her. Send anyone you want, as long as it's not me. Why? Because for us to heed God's call would ultimately rock our world. We would have to overcome our fears and anxieties. We would have to learn to trust God through our weakness, our deficiencies, and brokenness. And we'd be saying to ourselves, I'm all about the gospel. I'm all about the church. I'm all about the proclamation of the word of God going out through all the world. But I see myself as a sender, not as a goer. And sometimes, many times, and I think oftentimes, that response is because we fear actually doing what God is calling us to do. Okay, but that's missions, and that's, that's not really as relevant to us. This is not what's happening here in this text. Okay, but God has called you to a mission. He's called you uh, to be a father, a husband, a son, a servant of God. He's called you to be a mother, a wife, a daughter, a sibling, a co-laborer, a, a servant of God. But your preoccupation with yourself, friends, is hindering you from two things. It's hindering you from your willingness to see God rightly, and it's hindering your ability to serve God faithfully. So here is Moses' desperate plea, but then God responds, and I want you to notice how he responds. And there's really a twofold response from God. First of all, there's what I'm calling God's righteous anger. Look at verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said. Now, friends, this is the first time in the Bible where we read the words, the anger of the Lord was kindled. Now, it wasn't the first time that God was not pleased with a certain group of people. He wasn't pleased with Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden. You could certainly infer that he was angry. We know that he wasn't pleased with the whole world since he wiped it all out with the flood. In that text, we're told that God was grieved in his heart. But this is the first time we read about the anger of God being kindled against anyone. Later in Exodus, Moses will write the following words describing God. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. You might want to turn there. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And to be sure, even with Moses' questions, concerns, excuses, 
and objections, God has been slow to anger. But now, when Moses says, Lord, please send someone else, his anger is kindled. Now, a word of caution here. We must be careful that in seeking to understand God's angry response here, that we are not guilty of imagining God in our image. In other words, when God is angry with Moses, we shouldn't think that it is an irritated, exasperated, and frustrated anger as if God were saying, okay, fine, have it your way. God's not like us, and we're not like God. Yes, God is angry with Moses here, but not in the sense that he has lost his temper with Moses. For God to lose his temper would be for God to sin, and we know that God doesn't sin. So instead, we must seek to understand God's anger in light of his his patience and his holiness. It is right for God to be angry here. He had revealed himself as the I am, the sovereign, sufficient, almighty, unchanging creator and sustainer of the universe. He had patiently answered all of Moses' questions and objections, but Moses was still consumed with himself. He only had eyes for his weakness, his deficiencies, his shortcomings, his brokenness, and what he couldn't see before him in this burning bush was the great I am. Now, friends, get this. Moses embraces God's person theologically, but he does not embrace God's power practically. He hears God speak. He knows what God is saying, but he doesn't embrace God's power to act despite his deficiency and his brokenness. He's been introduced to Yahweh, but he continues to speak to Adonai. There's a sense in which Moses knows God, but doesn't believe God. He has a diminished view of God. Now, Before we jump on the bandwagon and get angry with Moses, we need to look in the mirror, don't we? How have we been guilty of knowing much about God, but not believing or acting on what we know? We treat God with respect, yes, but we don't believe Him. Our situation is different, we say. Our circumstances are not the same. My difficulty, my struggle, my hindrance, my impediment, my circumstance is different. I think we're a lot like Moses, really, when it comes down to it. And there's a rightness for God to be angry. So not only do we see God's righteous anger, but, but hear this. We all see, also see God's compassionate providence. Even, even in all these objections, all these ways that Moses is asking questions and he has concerns and finally says, I won't, God is still compassionate. And what we read next is a demonstration of God's continuous grace and patience with his servants. Notice God's providence here. Let's read here what it says. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you have to say, what? Now, here's the point I'm trying to help us understand. 
God was already working in Aaron's heart. God's providence was already at work. Aaron is not God's intervention plan for Moses' refusal. No, Aaron has already, by virtue of God's providence, been raised up by God to come alongside and assist Moses in the task that he has called Moses to. When you and I fail to trust God and we're left with what we might think is plan B or C or D, God has, in his providence, already been at work orchestrating the affairs of this world to bring about his will and purposes. Hear this, friends. God is never, never, never hindered in carrying out his purposes because of our failures. Just settle on that. Now, that doesn't excuse our failures. But God's purposes are not hindered by those failures. In His sovereignty, He works His plan perfectly through our struggles, through our failures, and even our rebellion. That's just amazing to me, that as Moses is standing in in front of this burning bush and God somehow is revealing His anger, I don't know what it looked like, maybe the fire just went like this, Maybe it was the tone in the voice. I don't know. Uh, But certainly something happens to Moses, and we'll see that next week. But it's amazing to me that as that encounter has taken place, even before that encounter has taken place, God is already providentially taking care of his solution. Just think about that. God's incredible, mighty providence. We don't understand it. We just believe it and we rejoice over it. So there's God's providence, but there's also God's plan. And notice God's plan. It's a twofold plan. And it goes back to what God has already told Moses. There's going to be this word that is spoken. And this word that is going to be spoken, it's going to be spoken by both Moses and Aaron. Let's read it. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. And he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. So God will speak to Moses, Moses will speak to Aaron, Aaron will speak to the people. In other words, the, the elders to Pharaoh, ultimately. This is what God is saying. What we have here is the ministry of the word, God's word spoken by Moses and Aaron. Philip Ryken, I think, does a good job of summarizing this part of God's plan with these helpful words. God is not looking for an orator, just a reporter. God is not looking for an orator, just a reporter. Don't you love that? I, as your teaching past, am not called to be an orator, just a reporter. When you have to stand up and bear witness to the gospel, God isn't expecting you to be an orator, just a reporter. He's not expecting eloquence. He's expecting a right reflection of his words, giving glory to him. And Moses, when standing before Pharaoh, isn't expected to be an orator, just a reporter of what God has said. Friends, it's time we got over ourselves and become reporters for God's glory. 
not reporters of fake news, not reporters of conspiracy news, but reporters of good news, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is the word spoken, but this word spoken was now going to be carried out by Moses and Aaron. Secondly, we have the word authenticated once again. Verse 17, and take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. And of course, that takes us back to the previous passage where there were these three signs. And if you remember, these signs were tools that God was giving Moses to authenticate the message. These signs were not supposed to be the focus. When these signs were done, you weren't supposed to bow down and worship the sign. You were supposed to look at the sign and see the sign so that you would listen to the message. And so here we have this wonderful, wonderful um, reaffirmation for Moses about what he is to do. And friends, this is just a wonderful picture of how God works graciously and patiently with his deficient and broken servants. We struggle, we fail, we feel inadequate. We just feel like we can't do this. And I think sometimes, even in the midst of what's going on in our world today, we might be overcome with fear. We might be that kind of person who's running around the store, bumping people out of the way so we can get our toilet paper. But friends, we have a God who cares and a God who hangs with us, who speaks boldly to us, but he comforts us with his with his words, he comforts us with his guidance, and he comforts us with his promises. Now, friends, it's worth remembering that Moses wouldn't be the last prince that left the comfort of the palace to go on a seemingly impossible rescue mission. If you flash forward to the Gospel of Luke, in particular Luke chapter 22, and verse 42, you will come face to face with the Son of God standing in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he stands there in all of his humanity, feeling the weight and the struggle of what he had been called to do. And it's a daunting task. It's an overwhelming event. And he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. He doesn't say, I can't. He doesn't say, I won't, but he expresses the concern of his heart in his humanity. And yet he goes on and says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He took upon himself the form of a servant to be made in human flesh and to become obedient unto death, even to the point of death on the cross. But this prophet, this prince, this deliverer didn't say, I can't, didn't say, I won't. He certainly felt the pull of human weakness, and he was sweating great drops of blood while he's pleading with his heavenly Father, saying, is there another way? Yet, even with those words, he presses on and says, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And friends, the most important thing you and I can do with all of our gifts, with all of our weaknesses, with all of our obstacles, with all of our impediments, 
is to worship and serve the one who said yes to his father in the garden. I want to draw your attention now as we bring things to a close. Because the question might be, what does it mean to get over ourselves? And I like what the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 7. He says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're clay pots, we're jars of clay. And jars of clay were not valuable, just common, just mediocre vessels that you put things into. And the, the point here is the value of the jar is not so much the jar, it's what's contained in the jar. And maybe a modern day equivalent would be paper plates. When we use paper plates, we're not trying to impress people, are we? We save our fine china for special occasions, Christmas, Easter, other occasions like that. And even then we don't use them because we're more concerned about protecting our wonderful fine china. So we pull out the paper plates. But paper plates are good. If you come to my house and I give you food on paper plates, please know that it's an act of love. It's not because I don't care about you. I do care about you. What's important isn't the paper plate, isn't the design on the paper plate, or the name brand on the paper plate, is it? It's the food that is contained in the plate that matters. Now this week, one of the items that I was tasked to go get were some paper plates. And my wife sent me out with some specific instructions, and she said, Rod, don't get the paper plates that you got last time. They did the job, but they were kind of flimsy. Get the Dixie brand instead. So I go to the store dutifully, and I took on the crowns and bumped people out of the way so I could get to the paper plates, and I got there to the stand, and what I saw was that there were four different grades of quality of paper plates. There's what I call the economy plates. They're the, the pizza plates, the really thin paper ones. They look like basically a sturdy napkin with a few kind of ripples on the edge, right? I mean, you have your food, and if you did this, the food would just fall down, right? There's that kind. Then there's the store brand, the off-brand paper plates, and there were the flimsy ones that I had purchased earlier that my, mom, my wife said, don't get. Then there's the Dixie brand, and the Dixie brand, they were nice because they came in all sorts of fancy colors and designs and that kind of stuff. And then for all of those really... Uh, uppity people, there was the Chinette brand. They look stronger, they feel stronger, they actually look like a plate, except they're made of paper. And the point is, they're all paper plates. And friends, that's just like all of us, isn't it? Some of us are economy, some of us are flimsy, others of us are impressively strong, but most of us are just average, everyday, 10-inch Dixie plates. We're still all just paper plates. Nothing impressive. I mean, I don't think you go over to someone's house and they pull out the, chi the Chinette paper plates and they go, oh, we must be really, really special. <laughs> no, they're just paper plates. Friends, what matters more than the paper plates is the content on the plate. 
were all paper plates to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. That's the Rod Phillips version. Our purpose is to be vessels that show off God's glory, to proclaim His gospel, to offer the bread of life. And so friends, I want to say to you, my beloved church family, that I love you in the Lord, but get over yourself and embrace the I am because he is the one that is ministering through you, frail, imperfect, deficient, broken you. And he is jealous for his glory. Will you do that? Will you see yourself as the problem and God as the answer and not limit yourself for what God can do through you? In fact, God is more glorified when he works through those who are diminished, those who are frail, those who are suffering and sick and broken and weak. He'll do that through Moses. He's done that through the years through many people. And he can do that through you. Let's pray. Lord, help us today. As we contemplate this account of Moses' life, and how he stands before you, and you reveal himself in all your majesty and glory, that at least enough that he can understand that you are the I am who I am. And yet Moses still doesn't get it. And Lord, I, I, my heart is burdened today for those who have a knowledge of you, but who are in certain circumstances failing to believe you failing to hold on to you, failing to, to grasp that you know what is taking place, that you are the answer, and that you will provide for them. Oh, Lord, we need you. Help us to have a right view of ourselves, Lord. May our view of ourselves not be measured by what society says, Lord. May it be measured by what you say. And Lord, may we live our lives ultimately for your glory, because one day, we as broken vessels as weak, flimsy paper plates will stand in heaven, complete, mended, without deficiency. And we long for that day, Lord. Yet while we are here, help us to glorify you with our lives. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Friends, we love you. We're thankful for you. Stay safe. Honor God. Live for him. And see what God is going to do through you during this circumstance for His glory. God bless.